listen carefully. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum, the host. And this week, I've got Jacob Steimer from MLK 50. And Jacob's done some covers the housing beat at MLK 50 and has actually done a a number of very recent stories, uh, interesting stories. But today we're going to be talking in particular about one about how rents in Memphis are going up so much. So welcome to the show, Jacob. Thanks for having me. So before we start, before we dig into the topic of the day, just introduce yourself a little bit. Um, you know, your reporting background, what MLK 50 is, and then also you're, you're actually with an organization called Report for America, which I was not familiar, I'm familiar with it only because of looking at, I do read all MLK 50 stories. And so I've heard about it, but I had not, not heard about it until recently. So I realize that's three questions probably, but just want to introduce you a little bit and what MLK 50 is if people don't know about it. Sure. So, um, I'm from Knoxville. I've been in Memphis for about four and a half years. Um, almost all of that spent with the Memphis Business Journal before um, June starting at MLK 50 through Report for America. Um, and yeah, so Report for America is basically a program that tries to strengthen communities by helping pay for additional reporters in them. Um, so they help pay for my salary at MLK 50 and help give me training and, um, you know, help out in other ways. Um, and yeah, so, um, you know, I'm a proud resident of Valentine Evergreen, proud, uh, attendee of downtown church and, and really love Memphis, my time here. So is the report for America, are they mainly, um, putting fellows in, in, in organizations like MLK 50 that sort of have a social justice mission, or is it, is it really just supporting um, journalism? Journalism needs a lot of support um, in this day and age. And so is it, is it, uh, it's a little bit broader. So it is a little bit broader. Um, It's local journalism. So they they don't place with national groups, but they, you know, um, the commercial appeal currently has someone. Um, okay. And there's there's lots of us all across the country, wide range of local news outlets. So MLK fifty, um, the sort of the, the 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 positioning statement, as you say in marketing, is justice through journalism. So elaborate on that a little bit. I think I like to think in my world. Uh, People know what MLK 50 is and read it religiously, but I don't know if that's true in the broader community. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so we we try to report on poverty, policy, and power. 
um, to bring about justice uh, in Memphis. We uh, were launched in April 2017 as originally a one-year reporting uh, project around the 50th anniversary of MLK's death. Um, but we've evolved into a larger, permanent, um, nonprofit digital news site um, that, um, you know, we're here to stay. So MLK 50s, you know, really received a lot of national recognition in its short tenure. But this week, you, uh, MLK 50, and one of the reporters just got uh, a, a you know, a prestigious national award. So just briefly just say what that was, because I just saw that. And I I think I got an email from Wendy Thomas, the editor about it. And that's very exciting. So yeah, shout out to Carrington Tatum, my colleague at MLK 50, uh, just received a Breaking Barriers Award from the Institute for Nonprofit News, uh, which is a pretty um, major organization in kind of the nonprofit news space kind of sets the, the gold standards that you're supposed to follow. Um, so yeah, it's a really great award for his uh, coverage of the Bahalia pipeline uh, controversy. Yeah. You, your MLK 50s coverage of that has really been deep and um, thorough. So I've been following along. So, but let's talk about uh, your most recent well, one of your most recent stories, because this is really what prompted me to to invite you on the show. The um, you know have worked in community development for a long time, and you know for a lot of time in the affordable housing arena, you know sort of what we you know thought and I think was true was that you know the primary issue with housing for you know low income individuals and families was that the housing was just poor quality, um, but it was cheap. And even though sometimes people had to pay a relatively high percentage of their income for housing, from a dollar perspective, it was just cheap. And I think that's been true for a long time. But um, but that's changed. And so I guess what, what prompted you to sort of tackle this story? Were you paying attention to national trends or just in your regular reporting, this issue bubbled up? What um, What made you... What made this seem like a good story for you? Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, um, my housing is my primary coverage area at MLK50. So, uh, and this is a national trend. And so when I started to see national um, reporters or economists start to um, talk about this, uh, it was something I definitely need to look into um, and dive into kind of how it's impacting Memphis. Well, and what did your, I mean, what did your reporting show once you, once you got into it? Yeah. So, um, and to be clear, we're still a relatively affordable uh, city when you compare us to others across the country, but, um, between September of 2020 and, and last month, the median apartment rent in the region rose by 19%, um, which is even faster than the growth rate nationally. A fiercely competitive for sale housing market, a relatively small number of apartments getting built, and an increase in apartment or and a um, and an increase in apartment renovations are all kind of playing into that locally and really jumping rents. Well, there's been a lot of discussion about the 
over the last several years, really, about the presence of out-of-town real estate investors. Um, is you think that's a factor as well? Yeah, it certainly can be. Um, the presence of out-of-town real estate investors can mean somewhat of a higher emphasis on pushing rents. Um, some of these companies are more aggressive about the ways that they push rents up on properties than maybe your you know, local landlord that owns two or three homes might be. Um, that's not something that I was able to dive into super far on this article, um, but it's certainly something I have my eye on and, and I'm trying to learn more about. Well, so, so what's the, I mean, what, what's the impact of people? Tell us, you, you, you talk, you, you interviewed a couple of people for the article and um, who've been very hard hit with, with that. So tell us a little bit about them. Yeah. So one woman I spoke with, Shamika Navonia, it's a single mom with a teenage son who was forced out of her South Haven complex because it raised the rates from 900 to 1300. Uh, that's like over a 40% increase. Um, it took her months to find another place, um, that she could rent for 900, um, that, you know, was a good enough place for her and her son. Uh, and she's having to leave the South Haven area, which has been home for years, um, to go to Southeast Memphis where she's never lived. Um, so it's just, it's a tough position. I've, you know, heard numerous stories like hers. Well, and that's, um, you know, we think about displacement a lot in terms of these big federal programs. Like you recently wrote sort of a follow-up story about South City. You know, the city got a a big federal grant to redevelop foot homes and Claiborne homes, actually. And I don't want to talk too much about that because that's a big subject in and of itself. But in those kind of projects, you know, well, one of the big issues is displacement, you know, people that have to move and and sometimes have to uproot their families. They've lived their entire lives in a part of South Memphis and they're giving a housing voucher and they end up moving to Hickory Hill. And it sounds like this is leading to to some similar kinds of displacement. Yeah, certainly. Um, whenever rents rise in an area, there's going to be some people that are no longer able to pay them. Um, we're seeing that in South Haven. We're seeing that in the medical district. We're seeing that kind of near where I live, uh, north of Crosstown Concourse. Um, it's definitely something that uh, people are dealing with right now. Well, and I've heard that, um, you know, there's been such an escalation in housing, I mean, the home purchase prices that um, I've heard that that's pushing even more people into the rental market. So that could be one of the factors as well, driving up demand. But I think when, when you and I were emailing, um, I was just sharing that, um, I mean, I live in sort of the heart of Midtown and I do know rents are going up. Um, I mean, a part of it is that the neighborhood is getting, um, there's a lot of redevelopment going on. And so owners of properties that have, I mean, across the street from Overton Park, I mean, big, beautiful apartment buildings that have forever 
college students and um and the owners of those are rehabbing them they're putting in the fancy appliances and so um that that's for sure i've seen that in my neighborhood but at the same time there's been so much new development that i've been sort of it's kind of a glut of new housing being Mm. built in the heart of midtown and i'm and usually you think about that as sort of you know pushing rents down at least temporarily and i know you're not a a multifamily housing expert but reflecting on what i read in your article i was you know, some of it kind of surprised me. Sure. Well, one thing to think about um, with the new apartments coming online in downtown and midtown is that while there is more getting built there than has been built in a long time, um, if you just look at our market as a whole, you know, including uh Collierville and Cordova and Germantown, there's not more apartments that have been built recent years than there used than there were 10 years ago. We've seen a very steady, relatively modest amount of new apartments in recent years. It's just shifted in location. So we're not, there is more getting built downtown and midtown, but maybe there's less being built in Cordova or Collierville or somewhere else. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, um, you know, focused on, I guess, what the real estate professionals would call the sub-market. <laughs> yeah. you know, the, and of course, it's all about you know me and what's happening right around where I live. But of course, you're absolutely right. And, um, and for sure, in some of the lower income neighborhoods, there's been um, you know, substandard housing units come offline all the time. And yeah. you know, houses are demoed. And, um, and so there's, I'm sure... I'm sure you're right. There's that that um, that across the region, there's probably not a net increase, and for sure, in some neighborhoods, you, you're seeing uh, the number of rental units decline. And probably with housing, with home ownership prices, there's probably some conversion to, from rental to home to um, to home ownership. You know, selling things while the market is hot. Certainly. Do you think? And I don't know if if you. Um, if if I don't think you talked about this in in your article, but um, we've heard s- certainly in some neighborhoods that the that the um, you know the increase in Airbnb has taken rental units off the market and especially before COVID, did that come up at all in your reporting? It didn't, and um, I doubt it would be much at play in this jump over the last 12 or 15 months because during the pandemic we actually saw a lot of airbnbs come offline um and i doubt um i'm sure many have come back but i doubt that that's been a a huge um cause of the jump so the um so from a policy perspective um what did did your reporting identify any potential policy changes that, of course, you know, we live in a, in in the United States, there's, you know, very strong property rights um, laws, and sometimes it's difficult for governments to control prices, but if housing is becoming unaffordable, sometimes there's a desire for policy changes that can address that. Yeah. So, 
one person I spoke to for the article, Alex Ullman with the Tenants Union, pointed out that the city of Memphis has a down payment assistance program and incentives for city employers to buy homes, um, just multiple programs around home ownership, but no similar programs for renters, um, such as, you know, supports uh, to help people pay rent, um, despite the fact that the city's most vulnerable citizens are renters. Um, so maybe that's an area that could be looked at. Um, beyond that, you know, I think, as you mentioned, more supply can always be helpful. Um, it's relatively easy for developers to get projects approved uh, downtown, but it's pretty hard to add supply in places like Lakeland and Germantown and Collierville and even parts of Midtown that have historic designations. So maybe those are other policies that need reevaluated. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm talking to Jacob Steimer from MLK 50, and we're talking about some recent journalism that he published about uh, rent rent escalations in Memphis over the last year, year and a half. So one thing that I I agree with you about, and I thought that was a very interesting um, observation about supports for for it's, there are I'm very familiar with there's all kinds of down payment assistance programs um, to encourage home ownership. The only rental program that I'm familiar with, and I think it still exists in the medical district, but it's designed to encourage people to mm-hmm. move to that neighborhood because part of the strategy, that place based strategy, is to get more people who work in the medical district living nearby. And so I believe some of the institutions, but other than that, um, and then on the federal level, I mean, this is just great evidence of the need for more federal housing vouchers. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think some ridiculously low, not to get up on the soapbox, but some ridiculously low percentage of people that are eligible for subsidized housing, including housing vouchers, get them. I mean, the, 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 the demand is way over than the supply. And that seems like an obvious to me that would work, that would help nationally. Yeah. The last time I checked in with Memphis Housing Authority, which granted was a couple of years ago, uh, they told me that the wait list for uh, Section 8 vouchers in Memphis is like five years long. So yeah, the, the demand for housing vouchers among people who qualify is clearly way higher than the supply that the federal government is willing to fund. Yeah, that seems like it would be, and that's not much, I think that's that's a long term, that's been a need forever. But um, with, with rents going up, I mean, it's just, it's, we think about, you know, places that are really unaffordable to live, you know, the San Francisco's, the New York's, um, and it's, and, and even Nashville, you've got people in Memphis now that have moved from Nashville because it became so unaffordable and it's just, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, frightening on a lot of levels to think that, you know, we could become that kind of a market where it's already, um, people are paying too much for their rent as a share of income, but to have that even worse, it's just, it's unfortunate. 
so I guess I have one more question about that. And then I want to ask you briefly about another story you wrote recently that was very interesting. So, so did anyone you interviewed, of course, there's been quite a few uh, stories uh, about, um, about rent escalation. And I feel like in some cases people have been able to negotiate with their landlords and probably depends partly on, you know, how many units that if it's a small landlord or a company that Mm -hmm. has a lot of units, did anyone you talked to, was that a successful strategy? Yeah. One woman I spoke with, um, who, who lives in Cordova was able to, uh, negotiate her, her, rent increase down but but it, but it went up anyway but just less than the landlord had had wanted wanted the two significantly less okay shifting gears for a minute you wrote another article i mean you've written a, a, a lot of very interesting articles and it's great i don't think any of the other local media have anyone that's just on housing so it's great to see a deep dive in some of these subjects um but but you wrote a story recently looking at um you know, capital investments in neighborhoods and how a disproportionate share of those um, go to white neighborhoods as, as opposed to black neighborhoods. Because so you just tell us what your reporting showed briefly on that on that topic. Yeah. So it was based on a study by scholars at the Urban Institute uh, who looked at where in Memphis money is invested uh, holistically, looking at both private dollars and philanthropic dollars. Um, And what they found is, number one, we have an incredibly small amount of money being invested into Memphis. Yeah, we do. And number two, the dollars that are being invested are invested disproportionately in white neighborhoods, even when taking income levels into account. So... And does this include, so this includes philanthropy and did you look at all that, um, you know, the Opportunity Zone program's been getting a lot of publicity now. And that's, you know, a program that came out of the Trump administration designed to incentivize developments in, you know, census tracts that were, that were vulnerable. And, but as it turns out, surprise, surprise, um, that hasn't really benefited, you know, of the opportunity zones, it's benefited the ones that were already affluent to start with. I'm generalizing here, but did that, was that um, a factor in your, in your reporting? Did that come up? If not, I think you should look into it. It has not come up. I have seen reporting about it. Um, I know of a couple projects here uh, where the developers spoke of the, the benefit of, of the opportunity zones, but I don't think that or I know it has not had the broad impact in Memphis that local leaders were hoping for um, whenever it was implemented. Well, I think like a lot of these programs, they just don't end up there. I think a lot of times very well-meaning, but don't end up benefiting the people they were designed to. And I think part of it is that that the that the dollars end up going into in neighborhoods that are kind of on the upswing anyway, and and like uh, an example like an, another program that's which I'm in totally in favor of 
um, the new market tax credits program, which I should probably ring the bell on myself, which is another community development incentive program like that also is census track based. And I know some of those tax credits went to build the FedEx forum. Yeah. Which is, was technically, I mean, of course that whole neighborhood and you probably haven't lived here, but that whole neighborhood was very blighted for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the time the FedEx Forum was built, it was definitely on the upswing. But technically, those are low-income census tracts. Of course, the census is only done every 10 years. And like I, said, I think that program's done a lot of good. I don't mean to, to, to speak disparagingly about it. But a lot of times, these kind of programs that are sort of crafted at the federal level just don't, when they're deployed locally, um, like I said, don't benefit the people that they're designed to. Sure. Sure. One one way to think about it is the fact that it's debatable the degree to which this is true, but it's certainly true to some degree that private investment dollars uh, in the world of development, even in affluent white areas like downtown and midtown, still need tax breaks to happen. And so the fact that if, if private dollars are barely willing to come into Memphis's affluent white parts, then they're certainly not willing to take a chance on South Memphis or Klondike. Um, when we're talking about large scale private investments. So maybe, maybe that's another way to think about kind of why part of the why, but again, even when we, what, what seems completely just unjust is that even when you take income into effect, it, it doesn't, um, account for the segregation of where dollars are invested. Yeah, and that connects back to the first story we talked about because one of the reasons that um, that even private dollars haven't gone into the some of these more affluent areas historically is because you know rents were so low that projects uh, didn't, as they say in real estate, pencil out, and and some of these projects that I met in Midtown for sure um, are on on lots, some of which were blighted. Um, there's a big fancy new apartment complex at Union and McLean called The Citizen. And that was blighted for at least 10 years. And it didn't, you know, it just, it didn't work for a developer. And finally, there was, you know, a combination of tax incentives that were offered. And then, you know, rent started to go up. And so it finally made sense. But where do you, how do you control the, you know, it's, I guess it's the sort of question like, you know, how do you have a little gentrification, you know, but not, um, you know, not just, there's no way to control how much rents can go up. Um, and um, so some deals do work now, which didn't used to, but as a result, uh, rents for everybody are going up and people are, you know, it's, it's, it's a conundrum. Sure. Yeah. It's not a, it's not an, a simple math equation. No, it really isn't. So, okay. 
Well, um, I feel like I did just as much talking as you, but it was a, a great discussion. So the subject I'm very interested in. And um, so I've been talking to Jacob Steiner from MLK 50, who covers the housing beat on a, a number. Oh, oh, Jacob, you mentioned that before we go, you mentioned that you're doing a follow up on the rent article and um and it probably will publish before this interview airs, but um, tell us what you're going to be, give us a preview of what you're going to be looking at there. Yeah. So um, this should be online, as you mentioned before uh, this airs um, at MLK50.com. It'll be an article about how the rise in rental rates are impacting Memphians on a fixed income, uh, specifically people living um, off of uh, the federal disability programs. Um, if you think about it, rising rents are tough enough for people that uh, are also experiencing the wage gains that have been happening recently. But uh, if you're on a fixed income, you're certainly not going to get a 10% raise uh, or a 20% raise to be able to pay for these increased rents. Um, and it's it's made finding apartments for some of these people I've talked to nearly impossible. Plus going back to what we discussed earlier, there's a lot, there's not nearly enough subsidized housing for people with disabilities and seniors as there needs to be. So, um, so they don't even have that as a as an option. I'm sure that's very very scary for people. Most most don't have housing support like a Section Eight voucher. Um, I think about 25 percent of people, uh, at least in one of the two main disabilities programs, um, have some sort of housing support. The rest are just trying to make rent work on their eight hundred dollars a month or $1,100 a month or whatever it is. And it's, um, if you only have $1,100 a month, uh, paying $700 a month on rent is just impossible. Oof, that's, yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, I look forward to reading it and um, look forward to, you know, future reporting on these subjects. So I've been talking to Jacob Steiner from MLK50 and you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. So, Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at WYXR.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to the second half of Memphis Metropolis. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM. And I'm here with Austin Harrison, who's a local affordable housing and community development consultant, one of our regular commentators and a PhD candidate. Someday we'll, ha- we'll, we'll have to start calling him um, Dr. Harrison. No, you won't. No, um, and... Um, Anyway, so the, but, but Austin, I'm so happy you're on because, you know, I talked to Jacob Steimer, a reporter from MLK 50 on the first half of the show about, um, about 
some reporting he's done about how rents have gone up so much in the Memphis area over the last short while. And of course, there's been a lot. The, the Memphis Flyer had a column on that recently. It's not a new subject, but he did a little bit of a deeper dive into it. But I'm coming to you for an even deeper dive because you study, you know, housing trends in both the rental and the home ownership markets. And so, so let's, um, so where do you want to start? I mean, I know you listened to the interview and so what, um, what context, I guess is the question, what context can you add to this short term, this short term scenario that he is, he, Jacob reported on? Yeah, yeah, and and I think with most things, context is a great word for it because and, and we do this a lot when you and I talk, but but I think we kind of have to go not too far back, but I want to at least go about 10, 15 years back. I think that's that's the that's the shortest amount we can go back to to, to bring the enough context to what what we're seeing you know today, um, and and one big trend uh, across uh, urban American housing markets. This wasn't a Memphis only phenomenon. Um, but it was a little, it was a little more concentrated in Memphis. But uh, it's, I think it's important for listeners to know that the way our federal government uh, responded to, especially banks responded to the uh, 2008 Great Recession in the housing side, is those those real those bank owned properties. Everybody probably remembers them who who was paying attention to that issue at the time. You know, they they wanted a way to get rid of them at scale, and so there was a white paper written around 2012 by the Federal Reserve that suggested. Uh, disposing of these properties in large portions to private equity firms. So some of the same investors that uh, had invested in the subprime, you know, securities. Um, so we want what we wanted to do, or what they wanted to do, was banks wanted to get those off their books. And so you saw Wall Street firms, private equity firms, uh, pension funds, um, you know, financial management advisors really, really begin to. Um, buy you know thousands of properties at a time in Memphis, and and so what this did to the Memphis rental market, which prior to 2008 was more mom and pop owned, right? It was, it was you're more than likely to have your landlord live down the street. Now you have landlords that are more and more concerned with the bottom line. Matthew Desmond has called this the Walmartization of the rental market, um, and so again, so natural me, phenomenon. Go ahead, yeah. Sorry, I, I know I'm probably going to get the jargon bell. We're going to get the jargon bell ringing up here. No, I'm not going to ring the jargon bell, but I just want to sort of strip down what you're saying a little bit more in illustration. So what I think what you're saying in the foreclosure crisis, you know, banks do foreclose on properties when they can't pay. And so, but banks aren't in the real estate business. So normally banks foreclose on a house, they hire a realtor, they sell it. And um, that's sort of how business was done. But during the foreclosure crisis, banks you know, local banks, but also Chase, Citibank, they were foreclosing on thousands of properties. And that's just, they're not in that business. And they were looking to get rid of them fast. And so these private, these Wall Street firms were the vehicle that was new to have these giant Wall Street firms buy up all of these properties. So I'm just wanted to even more plainly distill that down as to what happened. So go on. If you, I hope I didn't interrupt your train of thought. No, no, you didn't. No, and I think that that's an important thing to realize was this was new, right? There, there wasn't foreclosing here and there was a big deal, but having thousands of properties that were just, just you know, depreciating assets, right, weren't good to have on on your books. And so, um, so there, there was, and there was still that that capital there, right? The same capital that was investing in mortgage backed securities in two thousand eight still wanted a, a product 
um, that they could make money off of. And, and real estate provides that opportunity. And so we saw more and more rentals. And 10 years later, right, fast forward to today, and a 2019 Zillow report is calling Memphis the fastest growing rental market in the country. And we've gone from um, census data as well as uh, property tax records show that um, almost 60% of residential properties in Shelby County and in Memphis specifically uh, are now rental owned. It's, it's, I think it's around 57, 58. Um, so, so in other words, what you're saying is, and again, going back to my original example, when banks foreclosed one or two, they would hire a realtor. A lot of times that would go to a homeowner. But this was, these these houses that were foreclosed on, those were mainly houses that were owned by families. And so yes. thousands and thousands, in, in Memphis's case, single family homes over a relatively short period of time went from houses that a family owned to rental properties, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that that's an important point because the way you're described is an important way to look at it because the neighborhoods where we're seeing rental, we're not used to being majority rental. So Orange Mound, you know, historically homeowner uh, neighborhood, Whitehaven, um, Hickory Hill. Frazier. Yeah, Frazier. That took the word. That, yeah. The, uh, those neighborhoods were used to being 2005, 2006, 2007, were used to being stable, mostly owner occupied um, neighborhoods and, and this, and this isn't a, a really, a, there's no anti-rental sentiment here, but I think that it's just owners are different. If you can contact the, the owner who lives there, as opposed to a wall street firm or a California investor or someone in Canada, there, are, you know, there's a group out of Switzerland that owns thousands of homes in Memphis. I mean, you know, this is global capital. And, and now when the grass isn't getting cut or now when the property is falling in disrepair or a lot of the the, the renter is is living with some of the the deferred maintenance as as you saw in Jacob's article really well documented the the realities from a renter standpoint and then and then going back to the the core part of that article the prices are going to hop up right so now we fast forward to covid and it's important to know no I'm not um, seeking to defend landlords but there is a business aspect to this and because of the moratorium and and the the city did a good job better than most cities at getting their eviction settlement dollars, getting the emergency rental assistance dollars out to the streets, you know, tens of millions of dollars were deployed in relatively quick time. But still, you know, the impact, you know, even though that that was more impact than most cities saw, the majority of the market, the majority of landlords, especially these uh, out of town landlords, were having to figure out ways to recoup that lost revenue through the moratorium and and the and because landlords are able to to change the lease and, and raise raise rents. Um, you know, relatively easily uh, in a pretty landlord-friendly system, uh, you saw you you are seeing and have seen rents increase by you know seven eight hundred dollars, um, and and that and that's going to have you know a real impact. And then the other thing that's happening at the same time, which I think you know we've we've discussed before, but is is worth re mentioning, uh, the, the supply right. Less people are moving, uh, less people are selling. And, and so there's less property. And so that demand is kind of pent up. If, if you need a place to rent, if you need a place to move, you're willing to pay more because you're, you're in need and there's less properties out there. And also the supply constraints that were already there from an existing you know, vacant housing stock, um, a lot of vacant lots, right? We, there's, we have sort of what I like to call sort of lost our supply from the bottom of the market. Um, and that means there are just less homes. And so, you know, the demand's going to be higher and, and, and landlords are raising prices to Places I'm sure people are paying, right? And in some cases, uh, are are, are going to pay because they're out of other options, right? It's either pay the increased rent 
or, or you know, risk not having a, a stable housing situation, um, which during a during still living in the midst of a pandemic is, is a big concern for a lot of people. Well, and as Jacob observed in the first part of the show, um, the supply of uh, apartments in the Memphis area is not going up, despite the fact that I had my blinders on and was talking about how many apartments are being built in Midtown and Downtown after a, a very long drought. Um, but he observed, which is correct, which is that the that might be true because Midtown's hot right now. It's redeveloping. But in most parts of our region, there aren't a lot of new multifamily houses for sure being built. So the supply, so, so demand is going up and supply is not. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's putting a squeeze on prices. And, and I think it's also important to note most research that has looked at the, the type of funding and financing sources um, you know, we, you and I were talking predominantly about the single family market, which I think is is driving it a lot. But much of Jacob's story is also multifamily. But that same private equity um, is seeing, you know, and this isn't just a Memphis thing. This is an Atlanta thing. This is a Nashville thing. I mean, even pre-COVID, most of the new housing that we've seen built in any city has been multifamily because it makes more sense, you know, from a financing standpoint. And so, but it's that same. And I think the reason it's important to mention where that money is coming is what, what are their interests, right? They are very bottom line focused. They are very looking to squeeze as much, um, you know, equity and, and returns, you know, they, they want to get that NOI that those IRR numbers up on their pro formas as high as possible. And a lot of times that's going to come at, um, the expense of, of the tenant. And I think that kind of leads to the other key point of this, you know, again, not you know not bashing any any landlords or any rental property uh, managers out there but in a lot of ways you know the system and Jacob mentioned this is in his article the system is not really supportive to tenants and a lot of the universe uniform rental, uh, rental landlord tenant act requires legal access so. so what I do want to I want to shift gears and talk about the tenants um, uh, you know the protections that tenants have and then how, what tenants can do um, but before we do that, Austin, like look in your crystal ball for a minute. And I didn't t- tell you I was going to ask you this. So I realize I'm putting you on the spot. I'm but, do you, but do you think with, with what's happening in the home ownership market and what's happening in the rental market, do you think the era of Memphis being a place that has cheap housing prices generally is coming to an end? Yeah. I mean, if, if I was... If I was in the crystal ball, which uh, by rule I, I try to I try to not look into it too much because it's a it, it's a it's a, a, a risky game. But but if if I was in the crystal ball game, I, I do think all signs are pointing because again, you know that there is a COVID spike of supply, right? I mean that like there are less people moving, but I, I would say, and this was a trend that we saw pre-COVID, right? I mean a lot of the neighborhoods that are seeing prices skyrocket are blocks or two over from neighborhoods that were already you know, seeing that sort of investment prior. And so to me, there wasn't like, you know, there wasn't any sort of investment already there. And also if you see what's happening, so so the the supply issue is still a problem. And then the second key point, the reason I think that it's going to continue is the other markets close to Memphis, similar to Memphis, your Atlanta's, your Nashville's, your New Orleans, those are really getting tapped out, right? That this same sort of private equity and investment has, is looking for quick returns, looking for easy wins, and a lot of a lot of those easy wins have already have already been spoken for in many of those communities, but not yet in Memphis. And so you're even seeing on my block, we're seeing vacant lots go into new builds, right? Um, and you're seeing more of that happen in other places. Single new single family homes getting built. And so I think 
take away COVID, right? If it, the only thing that's going to change after the pandemic is, you know, the, the, the supply constraints may be different, but, but I think that the capital and the interest in that capital and still how relatively inexpensive Memphis real estate is compared to those Atlanta's compared to Nashville, compared to Chattanooga, compared to New Orleans, right? Louisville is another one where, you know, investors are, are starting to get tapped out and they want to know where that next market is. Well, and 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 people people who live in housing are getting tapped out. I mean, we have people moving here from those markets to Memphis because they can't. They have gotten priced out of some of those other places. And of course, Memphis has. I mean, some level, it's. I think that's beneficial to the community. You have young professionals. You have creative types. Makes the community more dynamic and more interesting. But nobody wants to. Um, have the kind of pricing escalation. I won't say nobody, but certainly um, I don't want to see that kind of pricing escalation that they've had in some of those other markets, real estate markets. And I know you don't either. We want Memphis to stay affordable for people who live here. But, but to a certain extent, I mean, it's, it's really already happened. You know, I mean, I I know in, in, you know, you're seeing five, six times, you know, pre COVID you could buy a house for 50,000, now that same house is going for 300,000, you know, and that, and that means that they're, that, you know, your property taxes went from a hundred, 200 to 800, a thousand. Right. And that, and for folks on fixed income, that's a lot. And that's, it's going to be hard to find that extra thousand dollars. And so I think it'll be interesting to see with the more expedited appraisal process that the County has, has passed recently uh, in the next couple of years, I, I think that'll sort of be the first the first, you know, barometer as to whether this is this is going to stay around and whether this is beginning to impact the tax appraisals because I think for me that'll that'll institutionalize it more and it'll be less of a blip and will become more real for a lot of a lot of property taxpayers in Memphis and Shelby County. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm talking to regular commentator Austin Harrison and we're talking about why rents in Memphis are going up so much. That's the, really the bottom line. So, Austin, let's. We've talked about you know landlord, the real estate market dynamics that have caused this situation. But let, now let's talk about the tenants who were in these really tenuous situations. What um, you know? What rights do tenants have? I mean, sometimes people just have to find another place to live. Um, you know, middle income people sometimes are just unfortunately squeezed. But what rights do tenants have if um, landlords, you know, raise their rent to a point that it's unaffordable. And then what are some, you know, resources available to help them? You started talking about that before I, mm-hmm. I interrupted you to ask you the crystal ball question. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, all these, you know, conversations really tie into each other well. Um, yeah. So to answer your first question, right, t- Tennessee uh, is other than, you know, other than some Southern states has a, what's called the universal, or I'm sorry, the uniform residential landlord tenant act, URLTA. We call it URALTA for short. And, and this is, explain what this that is, is better. Right? This is, yes, 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 yes. So th- this is adapted from other landlord tenant acts across the country. Um, it's adapted for, for Tennessee. Uh, and, and what it, what it says essentially is it does establish basic rights for tenants. Um, in the case of raising rents though, a lot of that comes down to what's in the lease, right? So some leases will have provisions that do not allow the the landlord or property manager to raise rents above X. Some do not. And so so the biggest thing in all of this is the way the Uralta is written in Tennessee and the way it was adapted for Tennessee places a heavy premium on access to legal services. So having, having a lawyer look over your lease, having a lawyer 
review your options if you know if a, if a landlord is raising rents astronomically or another common case right and sometimes this happens oftentimes this happens in both cases you have the rent raise and then you have a tenant that's going to say there are still so many repairs right because again when we're when we're walmartizing the rental market it's all about capitalizing on on your bottom line and and and, get, and getting the revenues as high as possible and maintenance is often the first place to go and early research conducted out of the Joint Center of Housing Studies in Harvard has looked at how landlords are responding to the pandemic. And they did a survey, a nationally representative survey of landlords across the country. Um, and all across the country, the same answer was we are going to defer maintenance. That's the first way we are going to look to save money for us. And then we'll raise rents maybe second, right? And so you have now you have tenants that haven't seen their property improved at all, right? It's gotten worse. And they've been asking for uh, repairs for a long time. And now they're going to bump up their rent, six, $700. But you do have options as a tenant, but oftentimes your options are dependent on having that access to the lawyers. And, and there are a lot of really great nonprofits that um, are working to do that. But like most nonprofits, right, the capacity is a concern. So Memphis Area Legal Services does a great job, but they are federally funded and have um, strict income requirements for, for who they can serve, um, the consumer uh, legal center, um, does, does a really good job at that. And then, uh, most recently with, uh, uh, what Memphis did, which other, again, other many cities didn't do is they leveraged some of the cares act dollars, um, to increase access to, to legal support and legal services, uh, for folks who much like the, the, the middle-class working class, uh, people who were in Jacob's article, right. They, they make too much to qualify for a mal's attorney. And, and, and so, and so I think having, uh, access to lawyers for working class, middle class uh, folks, you know, uh, is also really important because their rights are, are, um, are, are, you know, are kind of limited as well without, without an attorney. Well, it does, just doesn't seem realistic. Like I'm, I consider myself, um, you know, uh, relatively well to do. And if I was in an apartment and the rent went up at 40%, I probably would not consult a lawyer. I'd probably just try to get them to lower it. And if I couldn't, I would unfortunately spend, you know, spend money moving. I'd, you know, find a new place. And I mean, it's just not realistic that most people are, most people that are renters, this is my opinion, most people that are renters are going to feel like they have the resources to consult a lawyer. And as you said, you know, the wonder that the nonprofit options, um, which are wonderful here, they're relatively small organizations and they, are limited in who they can serve from an income perspective. They're really designed as a last resort for people who are very low income. Yeah. But, but the problem is the policy in Tennessee, it's your lawyer is your first resort and oftentimes your only resort in many, in many actions that you would take, you know, I mean, you, you can do things like send a certified letter and, and, you know, have communication with your, with your property manager, but most, most meaningful levers that you would pull in in your right as a tenant would require that that legal assistance and so i think that's a that's a big gap and then i also should mention that even though the the uniform uh you know residential landlord tenant act was adopted from other states that is a place that other states have improved on even in the southern context kentucky for example has just passed a policy in the last year or two that's that's made the ceiling of eviction cases so you and i've talked a lot about you know the scarlet e that evictions put on, on your record, even when it's filed, you know, they run a background check and now it's going to be harder to get a place somewhere else. 
Um, and research has also shown that these out of town owners are more likely to file an eviction quicker and they have, you know, technology that does it automatically. Um, so six, seven days late, boom, you get an eviction filing. And now that even if you pay it the next day, that's still on, on going to show up on a background check in Tennessee. So, so I think there are incremental, I say all this to say, I think there are incremental steps that Tennessee can take, uh, modeling after similarly, you know, pretty conservative states, um, that, that have made it incrementally better to, to be a, to be a landlord or to, I'm sorry, to be a renter in, in Tennessee. And, and I think, I think about, is, it doesn't have to be this way is essentially what I'm saying. Well, and you know, sometimes you'll hear, you know, progressives talk about, you know, the need for rent control. Um, and actually, you know, very familiar with how that works in New York, having lived there. And I'm not sure that would be politically palatable, and of course, in New York, that affects a very small number of housing units at this point. I'm not sure that'd be politically palatable. But having said that, I mean, could there be, could that code limit the amount of annual increases that, I mean, even if you capped a landlord at 10% a year, which would be a lot, um, even if you had some very high limits, could that be a way that the system could be improved so that people didn't experience these 40% jumps in one year? Or is that just not something that would ever fly? Well, it, it could fly, right? Um, but to continue with that analogy, the state legislator last year kind of grounded any attempts of that flying, right? <laughs> uh, because okay. they, they passed a, uh, you know, the state of Tennessee does a lot of preemption on creative progressive policies like the ones we're talking about. And, and they've passed a... Um, a, a, a preemption last year that says Uralta is going to be the, the you know law of the land. And if any city wanted to do something at the city level that went above or was in conflict with Uralta, like, you know, like a, a, a rent cap increase, right. You know, I, I think that would be in, in the realm of possibility legally, theoretically, conceptually, but given that preemption, um, there's, there's a, you know, it's, it's harder to do that now. And, and they're like, they often do, right. They did the same thing with Nashville with inclusionary zoning. Now they're forcing those cities that may be more progressive, like in Nashville or in Memphis to go, to go to the state to change that. And, and, you know, clearly there's already opposition there that doesn't want the Uralta to change and doesn't want any city kind of going around it. So, so basically what you're saying, if the city council were to limit rent increases, pass an ordinance limiting rent increases, the state has basically said, uh, you can't do that. No, no, the Uralta would still supersede it. So it could be on the books, but a landlord would would be responsible to what the Uralta says and could essentially ignore what the city says because the, the, the state law would, would supersede it. Well, I hate to be negative, but it sounds like there's not really going to be much that can be done to contain from a right, from a policy perspective, not going to be much that we can do to contain these rent increases for the majority of people. I, I would say, but for you know, going back to our earlier piece, right? From a policy standpoint, I'd agree with you. Uh, it, it's going to be a tough hill to climb. But from a from a what can we do standpoint, right? I think expanding access to attorneys for middle class and working class folks is a big thing, and there are a lot of people in the city working on that. Um, and then, I, and then I think educating tenants on and building. You and I talked about this before, but building a what I call was what I sort of call a tenants' rights ecosystem, right? Like a, a organizational, multiple organizations that are working to educate tenants, and because a lot of times people see the eviction filing and just move out, 
right? They don't know that that is the beginning of the process. That's not the end. You know, they see the the post on their door and they just leave. And, and so there are, you know, we saw that a lot in foreclosure crisis too. And so there are, there are options out there and, and they are expanding in Memphis um, to a certain extent. And I think that's, that's worth noting, but yeah, on the policy side with rent specifically with, with rent control specifically, I think it's, it's going to be an exceptionally hard, uh, hard sell just being realistic, but, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that Memphians who care about this issue can do and, you know, supporting Mal's supporting the university of Memphis law clinic. Um, we mentioned CLC, you know, there are other organizations that community are community legal well. center. Yeah. Community legal center. Yep. Yeah. Uh, other, other organizations doing this work that, um, could always use additional support, additional resources to scale up what they're doing. And, and that, and cause the other thing I think that is, is potentially policy related though gets back to that condition piece right i think there's the state of georgia uh, a couple years ago passed a um passed a, a piece of legislation at the state level that made it illegal to re- what was called a retaliatory eviction and you see this a lot anecdotally right so going back to the landlord won't fix something and so the tenant calls code enforcement because there's a there's a habitability concern because they're not fixing a leaky pipe or they're not fixing a um, you know, a, a mold issue or something that is impacting their health. Um, so they call code enforcement. And then I've even seen it written in the leases in Memphis that calling code enforcement is grounds for eviction, right? And so I think that's a policy that to me seems basic and common sense enough to where that shouldn't be, um, that, that shouldn't should be right. against the law. That should be against the law. And, and other conservative legislators have agreed. And so, and so I think that, I think that is politically feasible if we look at our Southern counterparts. Okay. So um, just to conclude, Austin, I want to just tell folks that that um, a local nonprofit recently actually published an overview and kind of a mini guidebook about renters' rights. And then I'll post that in the show notes for folks that are listening to this as a podcast, but also that's something that's available from Memphis Area Legal Services. It's um, High Ground News, uh, which is where I work publish an article about it so you can access it at highgroundnews.com and other places around the community. Um, That's a great place to start um, to finding out specifically what resources are available for renters. So Austin, I've been talking to Austin Harrison and we've been talking about why rents in Memphis have gone up so much and a lot of the historic and current factors, some potential, not really many policy remedies, but some policy changes that could help that situation and so, Austin, thank you so much for coming back on Memphis Metropolis. Thank you for having me. Always enjoy it. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.